Thank you for joining us on the MS and Sex Podcast. We affirm that people with multiple sclerosis are radically sexy simply by rejecting the negative messages that we get from our culture. On the podcast and in our classes, we learn how to improve the quality of our lives. And while we're at it, we inspire non-disabled folk too. So get ready. Don't flinch. Thank you for joining us on the MS and Sex Podcast. This is part two of our series on adverse childhood events and the connection to MS. This episode is just full of fascinating information that offers a lot of hope. So first I'm going to talk about how our brains store memories and then I'll talk about a therapeutic modality that can empower you through deep healing. Now, for this episode, I've relied heavily on the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Vanderkolk, as well as my own personal experience with this therapeutic modality. My own personal healing took many different routes, and I was lucky enough to find a few gifted therapists, and sometimes I just forged my own path by following intuition that led me to engage in somatic or body-based rituals like dancing, drumming, chanting, and even the theater that I did when I was younger. Ultimately, throughout my life, I have felt the truth of this statement in Dr. Vanderkolk's book. The greatest source of our suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. And the truth is, people can never get better without knowing what they know and feeling what they feel. Now, This is what I mean when I encourage people to learn to sit with discomfort and bathe in clean pain. Clean pain is what you experience when you allow yourself to know what you know and feel what you feel. Now, I know this is a lot easier said than done, but today we're going to be talking about ways that we can do this that feel safer and are much more effective Now, I've mentioned my past traumas in earlier episodes, and so the details aren't as important for me to convey as the story of how I found a path to healing. But I do have what Dr. Vanderkoek calls a cover story, which is the somewhat sanitized version of events that traumatized people come up with to explain what happened without upsetting the listener too much. I mean, it's, it's hard for us to talk about our traumas, and later in the episode, you're going to uh, hear about one reason, you know, one actually physiological reason that this is true. Um, but in the context of this episode, you should just know that I witnessed and experienced emotional abuse as a child, and just like one out of five children, I experienced sexual abuse. So I know of what I speak. Now, I didn't allow the conscious memory of my rape when I was 16 to surface until I was in my early 20s. But the fact that I didn't consciously remember it didn't prevent the memory from affecting my physical and mental health or my behavior. So when I was 17, I was diagnosed with cervical dysplasia, which is basically a precancerous condition. And I suffered from chronic pelvic pain throughout my late teens and um, early 20s, 
research shows that people who have been abused as children often experience things like abdominal pain. I developed a devastating eating disorder, and for a couple of years, I became compulsively promiscuous. So all of those things really were connected with uh, my experience when I was 16. As Dr. Vanderkoek says in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, traumatized people have a tendency to superimpose their trauma on everything around them and have trouble deciphering what is going on in their, their environment. That just sums up exactly how I had been moving through life. Those childhood experiences made it impossible for my mind to decipher the difference between what was going on in my present and what happened in, my, in the past. That's also how one traumatic experience makes you more vulnerable to future traumas. I felt disassociated from my own body and removed from the world around me. And I was so overwhelmed with life that I could only process it when I lived as though I was watching my life pass by on a movie screen. And that's no way to live a full life. When your brain becomes incapable of identifying any genuine threat because of past trauma or PTSD that is unresolved, first, your mental and emotional energy reserves become zapped from constantly being in panic mode. Second, you don't know how to protect yourself from new or real threats because you can't tell the difference between a real threat and one that is haunting you from the past. And this causes you to stop trusting yourself. And third, your body is continuously flooded with stress hormones that cause chronic inflammation and thus lead to chronic health problems. And that's what we talked about in the last episode. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Today, I'm going to attempt to explain how trauma short circuits the brain and how one therapeutic approach helps rewire the brain-body connections so that you can move forward in your life and stop living in the past. An important thing to note is that there is no one right solution or method. Our physiology, psychology, and experiences are all unique, and what works for one person may not be the answer for others. There are several therapeutic methods and actions that people can take on the path to healing. Now, here's a list of just nine, but there are many more. One, telling your story is a start. To yourself, through writing, or to a friend or trusted therapist. Two, somatic processing. For example, first, just notice how you're feeling or your emotions and observe the sensations in your body when you're feeling those emotions. And then with the help of a gifted therapist, get to the point of tolerating those feelings and sensations before you open up the past. Third, yoga, dance, and movement, such as martial arts or tai chi. Fourth, sound, such as drumming and chanting. Fifth, expressing yourself through art or music. Sixth, body work, such as massage or Feldenkrais. Um, this is movement therapy that some people recommend. I don't really know anything about it, but I'll put a link in the episode notes if you'd like to look into it for yourself. Number seven, uh, neurofeedback is another highly effective therapeutic method for PTSD. And I will put a link in the episode notes to a study that talks about that. Number eight, CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and though this doesn't seem to be as effective for trauma alone, 
It is great as a supportive therapy for PTSD. Finally, number nine, IFS stands for Internal Family Systems, and it's a kind of psychotherapy. Again, I really don't know much about that, but I will put a link in the episode notes to that. So there are many therapy options, but I'm focusing on EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, because it was a profoundly effective method for me. Remember, knowledge is power. So let's talk about what happens in the brain during and after traumatic events. First, let me try and offer a quick breakdown of our current understanding of brain development. Uh, Vanderkolk talks about the triune or three-part brain. Uh, there's going to be a very helpful link in the episode notes that explains this and even has some illustrations. So if you possibly can, I'd click on that and you can look at some of these illustrations while I talk about it. Now, the oldest part of our brain in the sense of evolution develops first while we're still in the womb. This is the brainstem, or what people call the reptilian brain, and it's at the, it sits at the base of your skull, just at the very top of your spine. And it's in charge of instinctive aspects of being human, like arousal, sleeping, waking, hunger, or feeling satisfied, um, breathing, and chemical balance. And it's always on alert for threats to our lives, and it reacts super fast. Next, the limbic system mostly develops during the first six years of life, but continues to grow and evolve throughout our lifetime in ways that reflect our experiences. Trauma can have a major impact on how it functions throughout the rest of your life. And third, the third part of the triune is the prefront prefrontal cortex, and it evolves last, and it is, but it is also affected by trauma. For example, it might become unable to filter out irrelevant information when it senses threat, or it may just uh, check out and go offline. Now there's um, a technique, uh, a scanning technique called an fMRI, and that stands for a functional MRI. And it shows what areas of the brain light up when we are doing or thinking about different things. And when this scanning tool came along, they could watch what happened to people's brains as they thought about or looked at images that triggered traumatic memories. So we know that, so now we know that intense emotions activate the limbic system, particularly the amygdala. And these areas are activated when a person sees or remembers something that reminds them of their traumatic experience. And it's important to understand that this part of your brain doesn't know the difference between past and present. Another important area is uh, in the left frontal lobe of the cortex, and it's called Broca's area. Broca's area is one of the speech areas of the brain that allows us to describe our thoughts and feelings with words. And this area shuts down during trauma and while remembering that trauma. And again, they're able to see that with the fMRIs. But without words, people are left with vague, sometimes disconnected images that come back as flashbacks and nightmares. And this is why people have such trouble verbalizing their trauma 
and why being able to tell our story is a first step to healing. Another relevant section of the brain is Brodmann's Area 19, and it's a region in the visual cortex that takes in and logs images when they first enter your brain while things are happening in the present. That's its job. While something is happening, it takes it in and it logs it. But what was interesting, uh, they saw this through the fMRIs, this area lit up in people with PTSD as they remembered an event that happened long ago, a, a traumatic event specifically. Now, in normal conditions, the images that come into this area are really quickly distributed to other parts of the brain that know how to interpret what you see. And so that area just normally, um, uh, in, when you're thinking about non-traumatic events, it doesn't light up because it's done its job and it's moved that information to a different part of the brain. Now, other senses like sounds, smells, and physical sensations are taken in and pro- processed in similar ways. But this intake analysis and storage process is interrupted with traumatic events. In this book, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, Vanderkolk talks about the cook and the smoke detectors of our brain. And these parts have kept us alive because danger is just a part of life and we have to deal with it. Now, the thalamus is what he calls the cook of our brain. Imagine this part of your brain gathering up all the sensations as you experience them and mixing them together to create what he calls an autobiographical soup of sensations of the moment. So then this soup gets sent two different directions. The first path is super fast and it goes to the amygdala, which is deep in our unconscious brain. And the second path is slower and it leads to the frontal lobes where they register in our conscious awareness. Now, when we experience something overwhelming or traumatic, the process of cooking and distribution of this soup can break down to the point that time freezes and all of those traumatic sensations in that soup feel as though they are happening right now, forever. Until, of course, you make the effort to change that and rewire your brain. Then he talks about the smoke detector in the brain, which is the amygdala. Remember uh, that the amygdala is the first place that that autobiographical soup um, ends up because it goes along this really fast path. And the amygdala's job is to tell us whether the incoming input is relevant to our survival. It's helped by the hippocampus, which rapidly compares the input that it's getting to past experiences. Now, if the amygdala senses a threat, like a train coming at you or a sound that is frightening, it sends a message to the hippocampus and the brainstem to trigger the autonomic nervous system to pump our bodies full of stress hormones that cause us to react fast. Suddenly, we might find ourselves actually moving before we're even conscious of what's going on. So this smoke detector is usually really good at interpreting real danger, but Trauma causes this hypervigilance that can trigger inappropriate responses. People talk about um, veterans having flashbacks, and that's one of the things that's happening when, when, when that occurs. But I'm going to give you ex- an example of a way this manifested for me. 
So I ended up in an emotionally and physically abusive relationship for about seven years. And this person was unpredictable and explosive. And they would frequently yell at me and break things when they were mad and occasionally physically assault me. And remember that this circumstance was just layered on top of the trauma of similar experiences that I had as a child. Now, after I got away from that person and I was trying to create a peaceful life on my own, I was still super jumpy. And at that time, I had two people renting out the lower floor of my house for a few days, and they turned out to be the loud couple. And I was living above them, and it just sounded like they were screaming at each other the whole time, and I was constantly on edge. One evening, the yelling got super loud, and I heard some things being thrown or broken. It sounded to me like he was beating her, and I had a total panic attack, and I called the police. The police showed up at my house, and there were four or five huge officers, just really tall, big guys, that came to the door. And they came into the foyer and knocked on the door where my guests were. And these people opened the door, and they were totally shocked to see these cops. Now, according to my contract with these people, they were not supposed to have big gatherings or kids on the property because there was a lot of breakable stuff in the space and it just was not kid-proofed. But my guests were in the middle of a family party or gathering and the place was full of people of all ages being really rambunctious. Now, I looked like a crazy person calling the cops on these people and all but one of the policemen seemed really irritated at me. But this one guy just looked at me with real kindness and he asked me if I was okay. And I think I just stared at him like a deer in the headlights and I was shaking, physically shaking really hard. And my breathing was fast and my heart was pounding. And then he said something really to everybody in the foyer about how sometimes when someone has experienced trauma, it affects how they hear things. I don't really remember the wording exactly, but I remember him quietly asking me if I had been in an abusive relationship. I was so grateful for him at that moment, and those few words really made a a big, big difference for me. Because of that recent relationship, layered on top of the earlier adverse childhood experiences, my brain was telling me that what I was hearing was violence, and that I was that I was in danger again, and I was reliving all of my past traumatic experiences as though they were happening in that moment. Kids playing and throwing things became a violent scene in my mind and in my body. So this, after this happened, was when I found an EMDR therapist who had a lot of education and experience helping people with PTSD and with help, I, you know, through um, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing, I changed my brain and I changed my life. First, I got through the trauma of the domestic violence, and then later I went back to address the tra- traumatic experiences from my childhood. And this therapy allowed me to integrate all of that old material into my current self so that I stopped living in the past. And the ghost of that frightened little girl rarely dictates my choices and my behavior anymore. I mean, we're always a work in progress, but 
I'm doing better now, physically and cognitively, than I have since I was diagnosed. And maybe it's a combination of therapy, uh, EMDR, and the disease-modifying medications that I'm on. But whatever it is, I am really grateful for the place that I'm in right now with my MS. Once you recognize that post-traumatic reactions started off as efforts to save your life, you may gather the courage to face your inner music or cacophony, but you will need help to do so. You have to find someone you can trust enough to accompany you, someone who can safely hold your feelings and help you listen to the painful messages from your emotional brain. You need a guide who is not afraid of your terror, and who can contain your darkest rage. Someone who can safeguard the wholeness of you while you explore the fragmented experiences that you had to keep secret from yourself for so long. Most traumatized individuals need an anchor and a great deal of coaching to do this work. So I was hoping to find a therapist to come in and speak with us about their experience of using EMDR with their clients and kind of their philosophy about EMDR. But we are living through a pandemic. And as you can imagine, therapists are really busy and really booked up and overworked. And so the timing has not worked out. Um, So today, instead, I'm just going to do my best to explain my understanding of how EMDR helps rewire our brains and our memories, and I'll talk about the process from my experience a little bit. So I'm going to start with reminding you that EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and this This technique is recognized as an effective treatment for trauma and other kind of disturbing experiences by the American Psychological Association, the World Health Organization, and the Department of Defense. Uh, So there's plenty of data to back this method up. And lots of studies show that the use of EMDR can help people experience the benefits of psychotherapy without the many, many years that it used to take. Now, an adult with a single trauma can process that event in as few as five sessions, which is really amazing. Now, if you have multiple traumas that took place during childhood, it can take longer. Like, I'm not sure how many sessions I had, but I went in for two or three different series of treatments over a couple of years. But still, it's faster than decades of talk therapy, and I really felt I felt a deeper, more profound healing than I had ever had before. So I'd like you just to have an idea of what a session looks and might feel like when you come in. So the EMDR Institute website describes an eight-phase treatment that helps transform the meaning of painful events. So these events and memories go from something that we're still terrified by in the moment or something that really affects our the way we move through the world to just another past event that we went through and we came out stronger. I love this quote from their website. The net effect is that clients conclude EMDR therapy 
feeling empowered by the very experiences that once debased them. Now, the characteristic bilateral stimulation is just one part of the treatment. And this bilateral stimulation is provided through eye movements, like you just, the the therapist will move their finger or some object back and forth in front of your eyes and you'll follow those, follow the object. Um, Or it might be sounds or vibrations that you feel through discs that you hold in your hands. And that's the method that my therapist used. She called them buzzies, which I thought was a little bit silly, but I think that she also had a lot of, um, she had a lot of clients that were kids. So that was just the terminology that she used. Now the MDR Institute talks about this therapy being done in eight phases. So phase one is where the therapist takes a history, and this can be done in one or more sessions. And I think that you don't necessarily have to consciously remember all of the details of the event or the events for this therapy to be effective. And although some of that basic information helps you and your therapist come up with goals together, you don't even necessarily have to speak these experiences out loud during the treatment. Now, phase two, the therapist makes sure that you have several different ways of handling emotional distress. So you might learn a few new stress reduction techniques that you're going to be using during and in between the sessions. Now, phases three through six, you and your therapist identify what is known as a target and you process this memory using EMDR therapy procedures. So this involves you identifying these three things. First, you have a vivid visual image related to the memory. Second, you bring to mind a negative belief about yourself. Third, you identify related emotions and body sensations. So also, during this phase, you're going to identify a positive belief, Now, your therapist will ask you to rate this positive belief, as well as the intensity of the negative emotions. And then you're going to focus on that visual image that you had in your mind, the negative belief, and the emotions and body sensations as the therapist uses this bilateral, uses some kind of bilateral stimulation while you have those things in your mind. So... Throughout this process, you're going to hear the therapist say these two words a lot. They're going to say, notice that. Just notice that. And I mean, that's just, a. I just, I love that. I mean, it's obviously a very effective part of this whole process, but in general, it's just a good thing to do as you move through the world. Just notice, notice how you're feeling, notice how your body feels, just notice. Anyway. So I remember that sometimes I spoke out loud, but, but sometimes I just remembered things without saying anything, and either way was just fine. And different associations might come up as you're talking or as you're thinking, and then those memories might be the focus in later in that session or at a different time. And just know that if you become stressed or agitated, the therapist will help you calm yourself with breathing or other techniques, and you're never going to be sent on your way in an agitated state. Now, it's eventually, 
throughout this process, however many different sessions it takes, you will feel the distress related to your targeted memory decrease. It's, it's really just amazing. It might happen in one session or it might take more, but it is a wild experience to feel the anxiety in your body and your mind just dissolve away. So phase seven then is for closure. So you're going to be asked to keep a log during that week and related material or memories may come up and you'll write those down as well as your experience of the self-calming activities that you learned in phase two. So you're just going to write all that down to go over with uh, your therapist in the next session. And then phase eight just consists of examining the progress that you've made thus far. And if you decide that there's more to work on, you do that and you move on to another target or you wrap up your therapy. You know, as I said, um, everyone's experience will be different. But I really felt a profound shift in my emotional state and I began to feel more present and as though I was really a consistent active participant in my surroundings. Um, I mean, just first of all, when I first went in, I was just so jumpy. Anytime I heard any kind of loud noise, I would just jump out of my skin and and that stopped. And over the few years since I went through this therapy, my physical and cognitive health has improved enough that I can go on walks again, I can ride a bike, and I can, I have the capability to produce content for classes and in this podcast. So I hope this episode has been uplifting and that if if you did experience childhood trauma or any kind of trauma in your life, or if you're dealing with some kind of block that you just feel like you can't get past, that you will be inspired to find a therapeutic modality that will help you find peace and healing. Now, as always, you can find me on Instagram at msandsex, or you can email me at info at msexualhealth.com. You can always, of course, write a review for me uh, of the podcast rate and review it and that would mean a whole lot to me so until next time uh, maybe just spend a little bit of extra focus noticing notice your emotions and when you're feeling an emotion notice the sensations that it brings up in your body and uh, yeah just notice so I'll talk with you soon